Welcome to the Lowenstein Sandler podcast series. I'm Kevin Iredell, Chief Marketing Officer at Lowenstein Sandler. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast series at lowenstein.com slash podcast, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Now let's take a listen. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Don't Take No for an Answer, an insurance recovery podcast. I'll tell you, I've been thinking about pot lately a lot because, as some of you may know, uh, nationally, more than half of the states uh, have legalized either cannabis, which I think is the more politically correct term these days, have legalized it either for medical or for adult recreational use. And so I've been thinking about its relationship to insurance because these businesses are businesses like any other. Um, you've got you know, uh, cultivators and you've got processors, manufacturers, distributors, drivers, retailers, and there are insurance needs for, for all aspects of this business, just like there are for other businesses. But I know from my own experience and also colloquially that insurance is a bit of a mess in this space. So the good news is uh, one of my partners, Peter Slocum, who will be joining us, you'll be hearing from him in a second. He's in our white collar group here at Lowenstein. And he does uh, quite a bit of work uh, for clients in the state of New Jersey. And so I thought we could have a podcast with Peter where he could talk a bit about the state of the industry here in New Jersey. And I will then interweave my questions and observations about uh, the relationship between those businesses and insurance needs and availability in the marketplace. So uh, hi, Peter. Welcome to Don't Take No for an Answer. Thank you, Michael. Pleasure to be here. Wonderful. So why not, if, you, if you want to take a minute and talk to our listeners just about who you are and what you do, that would be great. And then why don't you tell us a bit about your experiences here uh, in New Jersey with, uh, with the cannabis uh, businesses? Sure, absolutely. So a uh, pleasure to meet everybody uh, through the podcast universe. Peter Slocum, I've been uh, with the firm now for this stint for about four and a half years. Before I got to Lowenstein, I spent about uh, five years, give or take, working in Trenton, which for those who were not in New Jersey is the capital of the state uh, for then Governor Christie, various roles in the Attorney General's office and the Governor's Central office. And so again, a good understanding as to how New Jersey ticks and how it, it doesn't tick so well. On the private side for about five and a half years, I've been involved in the cannabis space. And so I got a good sense as to what is going on, what has gone on. And in fact, at one time or another, I have represented in one way or another, um, about half of all the entities that currently have licenses. So I'd like to think I know a little bit what's going on here in New Jersey. All right. Well, I'm going to put you to that test. So why don't you why don't you tell the listeners uh, sort of the short form version of what has been happening in this space and and what is happening currently? Sure. So New Jersey has been very politicized with its cannabis space. It has, a lot of it has to do with you know uh, just politics and who's in the office when. So tiny bit of history is that uh, New Jersey's medical cannabis program was signed into law at the very tail end of Governor Corzine's administration. So he was a Democrat. He was the lame duck. Governor Christie, a Republican, was coming in. And so they signed the cannabis medical program to sort of gift to the new Republican administration. Christie's folks uh, weren't particular fans of it. And a lot of obstacles put up. They tried to reduce what the statutory minimum number of facilities were that didn't go over so well. But bottom line is over eight years under the Christie administration, there was not too much action. You had the bare minimum number of medical facilities and they were all nonprofits. Governor Murphy comes in in 2017. He's uh, campaigning and stumping. 
and he's a big proponent of cannabis reform. And as soon as he gets elected, he starts, you know, firing both barrels to ramp up the program as fast as possible. He wants to not only increase the number of medicals, but also get recreational on, on board. So on the rec side, which I think is where a lot of folks are interested these days, there were efforts uh, in you know 2019 or so to get it passed by legislation. Folks in the legislature were not interested in doing it, at least not enough to get it passed by legislation itself. So to put it to the voters, voters approved it in November 2020 overwhelmingly to allow recreational in the state. They very quickly passed a statute earlier this year in February. So let me interrupt you just for one sec. So, but do I have this right? When the voters approved it, we actually amended the New Jersey state constitution. So Correct. I have a constitutional right in this state to use cannabis, right? You have the constitutional right to authorize your legislature to allow you to use cannabis. Okay. Which, in fact, we have done, correct? Sure. Why not? All right. I just wanted to get that clear. Yeah, it didn't need to be in the Constitution, but, you know, New Jersey politics, it was easier to pass the buck and say, voters, you decide rather than me, the politician. So where we stand currently on the rec side in New Jersey is that we have a statute, we have a governing body that's going to oversee it, and we have emergency interim regs. We do not yet have a request for application process. They haven't opened it yet, but folks are pushing them pretty hard to do so. And we expect the RFAs to open up hopefully by the end of the year. Can you talk to us a bit, Peter, about, I said it at the top of the podcast, the way I understand it, you sort of have, you have cultivators who are growers, I would think. You have manufacturers who are making products. You have wholesalers who are taking it from manufacturers and then distributing it to retailers. As I understand it, you need special licensed drivers to get the product from the wholesaler to the retailer, and then you have the retailers. But can you just talk in a little bit more detail? Because I think this will be important when we talk about the the risks at each step of this process from plant to retail sale. And that will feed nicely, I think, into uh, the insurance component and some of the difficulties, I think, that folks who are in this space are, are having when it comes to insuring against these risks in a way that, like I said, every other business really does. But they're having, this business in particular is, is having unique problems. Absolutely. So just a touch of history to put in context, New Jersey's original statutes for the medical, so they must be vertically integrated. That means one business from seed to final joint to selling the joint must be one enterprise. So they had their own structure. Going forward, there was a big effort, particularly in the rec side, to get as many people into the industry as possible. So they've balkanized the licenses and broken them up. So it's actually six different kinds of operations. And for the most part, they can't cross-germinate. So you have cultivators, people who grow with the pot, manufacturers, so people who take the flower and turn it into the product. You have wholesalers, which is what you expect a wholesaler to be. Distributors, which are more like glorified drivers, cannabis retailers, which actually sell the product, and then cannabis delivery, so like, you know, delivering your pizza to your house. Those are the six kinds of licenses going forward on the rec side. And of those categories, which are the ones that you've done the most work for? So at the moment, there is no RFA process for people to apply. Uh, You know, have folks who are gearing up for their application, but there's there's no opening yet. So when you talk about cultivators, for example, this is what I think about. You'll, you'll tell me if I've got it right or wrong. I would think the biggest issue for a cultivator would be that their crop fails or is otherwise destroyed. Is that right? 
Absolutely. So these facilities, biosecurity is a huge issue. And if you design the facility the wrong way so that you have mold spores coming in, it can just destroy your business. Like think about it. Like you're walking around in the garden or the street outside, you get things on your shoes that mean nothing to me to walk into my house, but I subject them into a clean, secure environment. And then you get a little bit of mold building up inside the facility and it just spreads like wildfire and you just lose your entire crop. You need to destroy it all, start from scratch. And, and I assume, you know, manufacturers who are sort of taking the flower drying it out if I remember how it works from when I was in college and then turning it into the variety of products from joint, which I would think is old school to edibles, which I guess is the new, the new normal for cannabis products. They have the same types of, of risks that any other manufacturer has, right? They could have bad batches, batches could go out into the public that don't perform the way they should perform <laughs> sure. um, or the way they're intended to perform. They have the same issues with people visiting and having third-party type liability, and they have first-party property issues, right? They have all the same potential liabilities, right? Sure, sure. You know, there's a lot of state-mandated testing for the cannabis product, but you know, you know, notwithstanding testing, things still happen because that's just life. Are there, are there any liability protections that they have at the state level because of the uh, testing? In other words, has anyone said, well, we're going to test it. If we say it's okay, you don't have to worry about it. I'm not aware of it being litigated yet because uh, you know, a lot of so far, these are all patients who have their issues and nobody's on the rec side yet. So they all get medical issues. It's hyper, hyper regulated. And then drivers, right? Drivers need auto insurance, presumably. And retailers. So I understand on the retail side that this is mostly a cash business in New Jersey. Absolutely. Because uh, getting uh, transactions with federally chartered banks is a very serious uh, problem. And of course, where you have cash, you can have theft theft from the inside, presumably. You could have theft of, theft of cash, theft of product, and you could also have theft coming from third parties, you know, your classic yeah. stick-up job, right? Significant uh, risk, of course. So a little bit on the federal level, just for the listeners who, who don't know, I mean, the cannabis space is still illegal at the federal level. And I think that's the reason why you have difficulty with banks, for example and why banks don't want to do business uh, in the cannabis space, because there's a concern that they will actually be furthering a business that is still, I think, largely a felony at the federal level. And now rolling it into insurance, <laughs> pun intended, you have, you have the same issue for the major players in the insurance space is that there, there's, there's a real hesitancy for major admitted carriers in the state, including the state of New Jersey, to get involved in insuring any of these, I think you laid out probably six different steps that are now not going to be vertically integrated. They're going to specifically be separate and all have their own individual insurance needs. There's been a real hesitancy because there's a real question as to whether or not by providing insurance, um, they're actually furthering an illegal enterprise. I think there are issues for them as to whether or not their public policy would even permit them to ensure conduct that at least at the federal level is considered criminal and whether those contracts would even be be enforceable. So I can tell you there are a couple of legislative initiatives that have been floating through Congress for a couple of years. And I know as of March, they're both back tied up in committees that are designed to sort of eliminate both of those problems. There's first is called the Safe Banking Act and SAFE stands for Secure and Fair Enforcement. And as I understand that act, that's supposed to make it easier for federally chartered banks 
to come into the cannabis space and allow these businesses to function the way a normal business does, which is at the end of the night, you can go to the bank and deposit your dollars and not have to keep uh, huge amounts of cash and not have to transport huge amounts of cash. Now, on the insurance side, there's something called the Claims Act, which is the clarifying law around insurance of marijuana. And it's designed to do the same thing uh, in the insurance space. And it's designed to give admitted carriers cover um, that if they do provide insurance to cultivators or wholesalers or retailers or drivers, that they're not actually violating the law and they're actually providing insurance coverage for activities that are permissible, even if the federal law itself hasn't yet changed. And I think these are important bills. And if, if, if let's focus on insurance, if the Claims Act gets passed, I think it will largely open up the insurance space. And I think you'll see a lot more traditional insurance carriers uh, offering coverage uh, to folks in the cannabis space. So let me. So let's go right to insurance. It's my understanding, and you'd give me your take on this, Peter, that there are really very few insurance carriers that are willing to offer any coverage to folks who are playing in the cannabis field. Has that been your experience? Absolutely. In New Jersey, there's only a handful that I'm aware of, but those that do play, but not the big names, and they don't have the best uh, best track record. Without going into any detail, you pay a bunch of money to someone so that they can assure you. And then when you finally have a claim, they, they pull out all the stops and say no wherever they can, even if it's a bunch of BS. <laughs> That's Peter Slocum, plain talk. Right. So it sounds like, and this again is my understanding, that you're dealing with few carriers and they're not the name brand carriers. What about premiums themselves? It's my understanding that the cost of this coverage is not inexpensive, notwithstanding the fact that your claim experience may not be a good one. Is that been your experience? Well, because, you know, supply and demand leaves it expect. If you're only one of a few shops in town willing to do this, you're going to jack up your price. Plus, there is a general perception, and it's not a wrong one, that these businesses have, you know, more cash than they know what to do with. So why not charge them extra? And this is of particular interest to me because I practice a lot in, in the DNO directors and officers in errors and omission space. And this is the type of insurance that covers directors and officers of companies. And my understanding is that that type of coverage is virtually unavailable right now, that it's very, very difficult for a director or for an officer of a company to get this type of insurance. And even when they can get it, it is, I've seen examples where they might be paying a $100,000 premium for a million dollars of coverage. And that is a ratio that is just outrageously high by typical standards. And some might say that it's barely having any insurance at all, really. And, and my sense is that, so then you ask yourself, well, who's going to be willing to actually be a director of a company in this space if they can't get appropriate insurance coverage? And who's going to want to be an officer? And I think my understanding is that it, it does really sort of limit the pool of players that can actually come in and engage. And from a public policy perspective, that seems to me to be problematic and a real weakness, I would say. Sure. Um, particularly for, in the past when these entities in New Jersey were not-for-profits, right? Because you're going to be the, a board member on a not-for-profit board. You're not getting paid for your membership, but you're so you're incurring this huge liability and risk of maybe getting sued, and you might not have coverage to cover you for when you do get sued. It's a problem. And also, talking about other forms of liability, you know, we oftentimes think in the insurance spaces, well, it's insurance to protect the business or insurance to protect an individual director or officer. But insurance also protects the public, the injured parties, right? Because it, it sort of guarantees that if you are hurt, 
by a product in this case, that there actually is a solvent entity <clears throat> standing behind it so that there actually is some financial redress. Now, I know the thought is that every cannabis every cannabis company has nothing but cash and they don't know what to do with it, but I'm sure that's more myth than reality, especially now in New Jersey with this nascent recreational industry. It's my understanding you're going to have a lot of small businesses maybe bomb and pop, I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but you know, shorthand way of saying they're going to be small, largely inexperienced, and probably funded only sufficiently to start their business. So if you've got an injured third party, I think they're in a much better position if they've got actual real insurance and if they're not able to get that. I mean, I think that just creates another problem for, for folks in the state of New Jersey or other other areas. There's a big drive to have smaller players in and as many small players in as possible. All right. Any other words, Peter, for our listeners when it comes to cannabis? No, it's just uh, it's a fascinating time here in New Jersey, even though, you know, as fast as pot law moves in the state for folks who say, great, we, we passed the amendment in 2020. Where's my pot? It's going to be a long time off, folks, because they haven't even opened the RFA process yet. Then they need to apply. They got to judge. They got to review. And then they award. And then after they award, people need to build their business. So we're a long ways off. I all right. Well, on that down note, sorry, I'll give Peter the lats. All right, Peter. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for the listeners, and we'll see you on our next podcast. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe to our podcast series at Lowenstein.com/podcasts, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Lowenstein Sandler podcast series is presented by Lowenstein Sandler and cannot be copied or rebroadcast without consent. The information provided is intended for a general audience and is not legal advice or a substitute for the advice of counsel. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. The content reflects the personal views and opinions of the participants. No attorney-client relationship is being created by this podcast and all rights are reserved.